You know, there are some people that are really afraid to try something for fear that, you know, they'll lose all their money. And I find this particularly true of people who grew up with resources because they internally, they'll never say this out loud, but internally they fear, I grew up with someone else's money. I started my career with someone else's money. And if I lose it all, I don't know if I can build it back. So if there's any part of you that feels called to more than what you have, right? Whether it's I'm in this career, but there's other things I really want to do with my life or there's other areas of pursuit, or I, I was a creative when I was younger, a musician, and I didn't pursue that thing. Obviously, that's my story. This next guest is really going to touch on why it's so important to give ourselves that permission to be, as she would call it, the human Venn diagram, the multi-hyphenate, the many things that we want to do to give ourselves that permission to follow some of that excitement and curiosity and find that joy in our lives. I hope you really enjoy. Welcome to The Dream Beyond. I'm your host, Nick Tarasio. I'm a CEO, musician, and overall seeker of truth, inspiration, and simply put, how to live the most fulfilling life possible. Growing up surrounded by extremely wealthy and successful people gave me unique and unfiltered perspectives of those who have seemingly made it. And on The Dream Beyond, we're letting you in on what it really takes to achieve your dreams, what happens when it turns out your destination isn't the promised land you were expecting, and how to process the lessons from your past while mapping a course to true fulfillment. Let's get started. Thanks for listening today, and I'm here with a self-described human Venn diagram. She has crafted a career at the intersection of business, tech, and the arts. She's also a senior lecturer at Harvard Business School. What a flex, where she teaches entrepreneurship and marketing. Uh, she's also an author, serial entrepreneur, co-host of the podcast, The Limit Does Not Exist. And she's a singer that's near and dear to my heart and adventurer. Uh, please welcome Christina Wallace to the show. Thank you Thanks. for being here, Christina. Thanks for having me. I'm so thrilled. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm really, really curious about this topic of what your book is about. And again, I, uh, I just recently found out about this book, The Portfolio Life. And I'm going to see if I can say the whole, ti whole title how to future-proof your career, avoid burnout, and build a life bigger than your business card. Like this speaks so to my heart. And uh, I, I want to kind of go back in time to as someone that now has, I, I think you refer to it as the multi-hyphenate. Mm -hmm. What did you want to be when you were a child and you thought about like, this is what I want to be when I grow up? What was that for you? I only really remember being asked this question once in the fourth grade. And I remember very clearly my answer because it it strained credulity of the adults around me. I said I wanted to be a professor, an author, president, and an astronaut all at the same time. This was crucial. I didn't want to do this consecutively. I wanted to have all four of these careers at the same time. Unfortunately, I mean, I've hit the first two, professor and author, check. But I applied to be an astronaut years ago through the NASA Astronaut Candidate Program and was rejected. So I'm sorry to say this life dream is not happening. That's horrible. Why did they reject you? Did, <laughs> did, did, did they give you any reason? They didn't. I mean, at the time they had uh, they had recently opened their candidacy. I mean, for the most part, they prefer like PhDs, right? In, across the sciences, the STEM, uh, PhD is sort of the the preference, but they had relaxed the education requirement uh, for a while when they were encouraging STEM educators to apply. So you didn't have to have a PhD. You could apply with just a master's um, or even just a bachelor's degree with uh, a, you know equivalent experience. And at the time, I was running a program for girls in computer science based at the Muse uh, American Museum of Natural History. And so I was a computer science educator and I thought, ah, I, you know, I, I sort of qualify under this new uh, rubric, but uh, alas, I was not chosen and they didn't tell me why. <laughs> That's horrible and death of a dream, I imagine, but you still have time. I you do. I, I mean, be, I just have to go get that PhD time. and then the LASIK surgery because I have terrible eyesight and then you know, there's there's a couple of hurdles to going to Mars at this point, I'm afraid. Yeah. And and so like you in fourth grade already had this sense of there's many things I want to do again mm -hmm. at the same time, which Crucial. I really love. Uh, <laughs> how did you like how did you find guidance or or how did people show up in your life when you would share that? 
Mm-hmm. What kind of feedback would you get? Would you get that you should only focus on one thing? Like that's not really how the world works. Like what did you experience in that process? I mean, for the most part, I was this precocious kid. I went to a very small private school that I was, you know, two to three years advanced from my classmates in every subject. And so the school was not prepared to deal with that. And so for the most part, just like sent me to the corner with textbooks from the grades ahead of it and said, teach yourself. And so it, it sort of, I don't know, it fit into my overall vibe, which is like, oh, that Christina roll your eyes. But at the same time, you're kind of like, if anyone's going to do it, it'll be her, you know? So they didn't dissuade me exactly, but there was also this like, yeah, yeah, that's cute. And I think it was in two parts. One, because of just maybe the ridiculousness of my aspirations. And two, because I grew up in a working class community in the middle of Michigan. Like it would have been as ridiculous to say, I want to go to Harvard as it would have said to say, I want to go to Mars, right? Like both right. of those things were not within the the scope of the dreams that most of the kids that I grew up with had. So, so I think for the most part, they're kind of like, that's cute. She has big dreams. And at some point she'll, she'll realize how the world works and we'll let someone else burst that bubble. <laughs> Little did yeah. they know the bubble never burst. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm just amazed. I was really curious as I was thinking about what I was going to ask you. I did not expect you to have an answer like that. I expected something completely left field. You're like, no, I, I already knew I was multi-hyphenate. It's kind of my identity. And and like, so t- tell us more about like kind of the high level of the concept of the portfolio life in the first place. Where did that come from? What's the message you want to send to people? Yeah. So I I had this idea before I came to business school, kind of growing up in a world without a financial safety net, without much of a safety net of any kind, particularly when my first career being in the performing arts, in the nonprofit arts world, I had this feeling from early on that I needed to be multidisciplinary. I needed to have multiple irons in the fire in order to uh, sort of be my own safety net to to be prepared if something fell apart, if I got fired, if I got laid off, if a if a show I got cast in never ended up happening, right? Like I needed to have multiple bets in play because I didn't really have a safety net any other way. And then I got to business school and I learned about portfolio theory, which was not something I was exposed to growing up. But the pre- you know the premise of portfolio theory is you have a mix of assets that have different risk, different return profiles, and you design that mix depending on the season of life you're in, right? So when you're young and you can take a ton of risk, you tend to have a lot of money in stocks and very little money in cash or bonds or or fixed income securities. And then as you get older, when you need to be taking less risk, when you need more certainty in your cash flows, then you rebalance that portfolio allocation to be less risky, more stable. And I, it was just this like aha moment of number one, we never expect you to put all your money in one basket from an investing point of view. So why are we teaching people to put their whole career on one trajectory, especially given the amount of change that we are experiencing? Our generation, certainly younger people from us, the amount of change that we are experiencing is is a little bit like unfathomable. It's like every five years, there's like a once in a hundred year event. And you're like, can it, can we just stop for a hot second? <laughs> and so, so to have that diversification is kind of the only way to be prepared for this sort of predictable un- unpredictability of the world. But also... There's this element of rebalancing as you go through these chapters of your life, these seasons, what you need changes for these different stages. And so there might be a season where you say, I'm single, I'm young, I can take big risks, no one's depending on me, let's go and do something crazy. And then you might have a season where you're like, actually, what I value the most is control over my time, predictability, flexibility. I have people who need me, I have other responsibilities that's what I'm going to optimize for. And so this notion that you can take this mix of activities, paid work, yes, but also all the other things in your life and and really be intentional about how you design it for the season you're in. I think that was the moment that I was like, this, this is a model. Forget work-life balance. Work is in the context of your life. 
think about a portfolio instead. I like that a lot. And it's something that, again, I've never heard the concept before. And my mind immediately goes to like the permission I never gave myself to do that. I mean, it, mm -hmm. it was more, I think like people would make fun of it or make little jokes of like, oh, it's so cute. Nick has a music thing he's trying to do. Mm -hmm. and he's also trying to run the aviation business. He's a pilot and a mechanic. <laughs> and it was just like, yeah, you just have a focus issue. And I, I, I really was curious to understand from you is as you encourage people to consider that path, mm -hmm. how do you help people navigate what is too much and not enough? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, so. On the too much side, I think there's a natural point as you start to diversify. I'm I'm confident you have felt this moment. I certainly have many times where like th there's too many balls in the air, like you're juggling all the pieces and either just total it's too much or just one of them becomes really unpredictable or super variable or like there's a surge. Right. And and collectively, the whole system feels the stress, feels the strain. Like you're not sleeping because you're constantly running through the to-do list and you're like, how am I going to squeeze this in? And if I just skip that meal, then maybe I can get this rehearsal. You know, like the whole thing doesn't work. And, and so on the too much side, I think there's a natural tinkering that you're going to have to go through as you start to build out your portfolio of like, huh, I think I still have some capacity here, but it can't be a thing that is, you know, every Tuesday night from seven to 10. It has to be something that's maybe a little more uh, under my control. I can squeeze it in whenever I have some some space, right? So there's both like a, a commitment piece and a cadence piece of as you're kind of putting the pieces together. And that just requires some tinkering, especially when you go through these changes in in your seasons of life, where like you used to be able to balance it all. And now, as I do, I have two small children. They're one and three years old, and they are constantly sick, constantly. Thank you, daycare plague. And so even though, you know, even when they're sick, I can I can stay home with them. I can, you know, put on Sesame Street or some other show and and still right. Like, but I I have to be in control of when I pull that ripcord and say, okay, clear my schedule. I gotta work from home today. So so you start to kind of like tinker with that. On the on the not enough side, it's sort of to your point about permission that you give yourself, right? A lot of this starts from the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. And this is why this all starts from, and I, I outline these kind of four pillars of the portfolio life. It starts from a place of identity. This is why I describe myself as a human Venn diagram that is that has been how I introduce myself. That has been how I talk to myself for over a decade. Because if you start with, well, I'm a pilot, you've already told yourself, I don't have permission to go play guitar. I don't have permission right. to start a podcast. Like, why would a pilot have a podcast? Right. So, but if you start your with like, I'm an adventurer, I'm a connector, I'm a storyteller. I I like to see new things and like find ways to mash up new ideas. Like you're pulling your identity up a level to be a lot more about how you see the world or what you have to offer when you enter a room. And that opens up permission to yourself to say, yeah, I, I can add that to my portfolio. That is consistent with who I am and what I care about and the kind of impact I want to have on the world. That's not me being flaky or can't make up my mind. That's like, no, the, that is who I am. So this it starts from excavating, in many cases, the things about ourselves we might have put away because we needed to grow up and look serious, bringing them back out, flesh out your Venn diagram, and then look for those opportunities, those intersections to say, no, I and I'm this and I'm that. It's not an or. Uh, and just play. That's, I mean, there's the permission piece there is so hard for me as you're saying it. It's just the amount of people, again, I just think like there's a, there's a shame component that comes along with it because I imagine mm -hmm. that it's really scary for someone to hear, wait a minute, if you could be multi-hyphenate, maybe I could have been too, mm -hmm. but I, I gave up on myself a long time ago mm -hmm. and just your very existence shakes me to the core and makes me regret mm -hmm. my life. Like the amount of people I hear justify, well, you don't understand. I really had to just focus on this thing. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So I, I, like, I, I'm wondering, do you get people that, <laughs> that resist this concept when you tell them? Oh, for sure. Because there is that element of like, crap, I made the wrong choice. And my my response to them is like, you're not dead yet. Like literally, unless you're dead, it's not too late. You can always make a change starting today. And and I feel like there. so there's this um, drawing that I got permission to include in the book. I love this uh, this graphic. It's from um uh, an illustrator who who blogs under wait wait but why on Instagram and on Twitter, and it's this idea of like the different paths you could have taken in life, right? So you start with like this one dot on the day you're born, and then growing out of this dot are all these different options, and it highlights the path that was chosen, kind of all the way to this point of today. There's like this little you know vertical line. Here's where we are today, and if you look back, you see all the paths you didn't choose, which is where a lot of people spend their time looking. They look at what could have been, but they didn't go that path. What I love about this drawing is starting from this one single dot of where you are today, just as many lines kind of spin out of where that person is today, the choices you still have ahead of you, the options that are still available to you are just as plentiful as the lives that you didn't lead. But you have to have that perspective. You have to have the ability to see the options still ahead. And I'll give you a great example of this. My best friend, Katherine Jennings, I include her in the book. She, in high school, in early college years, she grew up in the South. She grew up in Tennessee and wanted a family. Obviously, a woman had this perception of what it meant to be a working woman with a family in the South. And so decided kind of early on, she wanted to be a doctor, but decided, you know, it makes more sense for me to be a teacher. That seems consistent with the story of this life I want. And so she studied biology, she got her master's in teaching, and she spent the first decade of her career as a middle school biology teacher. And she was excellent at it. And after about seven or eight years, she was first in Knoxville where she grew up. After about seven, eight years, she was starting to get a little bit frustrated with teaching in an under-resourced public school situation. She thought, okay, let me just try a different context. Maybe that's where the friction I'm feeling is. And so she moved to Brooklyn. She moved to New York. And uh, and we got to live together again. We were college roommates. So we'd known each other a lifetime at this point. And she moved to Brooklyn and started working at a private school, a very fancy private school, and where she had all of the resources and all of the support. And she, again, was amazing at it, but she still felt that friction. And finally, after like one, you know, too many yoga retreats, finally was like, I know what that friction is. It's that I wanted to be a doctor and I sold myself short. And then the very next thing Kat did Rather than beat herself up over the fact that she could have been a doctor and was not going to be, she started looking into options to become a doctor. And at 36, she quit her teaching job and went to medical school at Columbia. And she's graduating in two weeks to be an OBGYN and got a top tier residency at the University of Pennsylvania, where she will be 40 as she starts her new career. But she had this incredible perspective of like, I'm not dead yet. I still want this. 12 years later, I still want this. So how can I make that possible? And in between all of this, she realized I can still have a family. She got married. Her wife is following her to Philadelphia. And they have all of these all of these different models for how they could have a family. But it required opening that perspective of it's not too late and what other options do we have for this thing we say we want other than the obvious straight line traditional path that is the bias we probably all start from. I mean, I was about to poke the bear here and I wonder if I should do this, but I'll do it anyway, because that's generally how I go. Please, like, I'm wondering about the correlation between like what I hear a lot of is that there's a chance to like fall into the hedonic treadmill of like novelty seeking. Like mm-hmm. there's like, that's like the dark side of this. Like, what if I go into that side? And I also <laughs> imagine that like in the same way people have a, uh, a mono relationship to work. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people have a mono relationship to relationships. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering how going down this road, you know, 
do you see that people that are multi-hyphenate also show up that way in relationship? Because as you were talking about this woman, Kat, and kind of how mm -hmm. she's figured out like, hey, we need to question the structure so that I can still make this possible to have a family and still pursue being a doctor. Yeah. Like, is this novelty seeking at the end of the day? Is this like a lot of what drives this? Is this like a necessary ingredient for fulfillment? I wouldn't call it novelty seeking, but I do think you're right that once you start questioning the playbook that you were handed as a child and that you were socialized into as a young adult, it, it sets off some bells where you might be feeling friction in other parts where you say, maybe this you know, lifelong monogamy, maybe that doesn't fit. Maybe that's why I keep having frictions in relationships. Maybe there is a polyamory or a portfolio approach to partnerships that would suit me as well. And I actually talk about that in the book. I've had a number of folks reach out and say this is the first serious book I've ever come across that acknowledges that polyamory might be a model that fits people. And and I I think it's that same permission. You know, it's funny that you you ask this as though like, but what happens if you question one thing? And it reminds me when I when I, you know, <laughs> was in therapy many many years ago. I love therapy. I highly recommend it. But I was in therapy. I had an eating disorder in high school. I was all I was I have this very complicated relationship to food. And I always had these moments with my therapist where I was like, if I give on this one thing and allow myself to splurge on calories and this one meal, this one snack, this one thing, it'll just spin out of control and I'll just gain, you know, a thousand pounds and it will it will all be over. And she's like, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that if you give yourself a little bit of compassion and flexibility that you are incapable of recognizing what is the right amount for you? And I think it's the same thing that that people who fear that flexibility say, well, first you question jobs and then you're going to question monogamy and what next? You're like, <laughs> are terrorist. you just, you're a I know, I know. <laughs> are you just, are you really that afraid of, for the most part, looking in the mirror and seeing who you really are and what you really want. Like, is that what scares you? And you're using these, these structures as an excuse not to figure out what's at, at the core of what you need. I, I do think maybe there is a risk of this novelty seeking, but it starts from a place of what do you need? What do you need and what do you want? Those are the two questions that starts this exercise. What do you need for this chapter of life? And what do you want? And, and not just what do you want out of your job. What do you want out of your life? When you get to your deathbed, who do you want to have loved? What do you want to have seen? What imprint do you want left in the world on the day you leave it? And get specific. I make you write out a hundred of these wishes in the book. Everyone can do about 30, 35. I press you to do a hundred because you start realizing all of the crazy shit that you didn't even have the guts to write down in the privacy of your own room. And that is when you start to really uncover, I want these things and I'm not doing anything in the current version of my portfolio to drive any closer to those things. Yeah, and that's, that's where I'm, it gets a little scary. I'm glad we went there because that's really I'm very pro like figure out all the things you want and figure out how to have them in your life. But yeah. there is like I'm I'm reacting to that inner shame voice that has really been the thing that has anchored me. It's all the people in my life that said, you don't even know how good you have it. You should be mm -hmm. so grateful for what you have. And, you know, again, look at where you grew up in the world. There's all these starving people. And yet that's like the, the, this desire to want more, I think, is one of the biggest barriers of like, I'm not allowed mm -hmm. to have the desire of even fantasizing about what my life could be. So this idea of doing the hundred things yeah. sounds really interesting because it's like, yeah, do I even allow myself to have that many things that I want? Yeah. I mean, you called it exactly right. It's this shame that says like, I should be happy for the good enough. And I think, you know, I, I look around at at the voices, at the the folks that are sort of shaping culture and politics and business, the world at large. And I see a lot of really miserable people who, for the most part, have gained power as a way to, to counteract their misery, in my opinion. 
And I, I think it is a radical act to find joy and to build a joyful life that feels fulfilled. I, I think we'd have a lot less damage if we had more joyful people and fewer miserable billionaires. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that, which is, I, I guess it goes back to, for you, where did your permission come from? Like, I'm wondering what conditions created mm -hmm. the ability for you to, whether at such an early age, carry that all the way forward, or maybe even find it again in your life at some point of like, yeah. fuck it, this is what I want. And I, <laughs> yeah. I'm only answering to me anyway. So a big part of it, I, you know, I've, I've sat with this question for years because, you know, now I'm, I'm raising two kids and I'm kind of like, okay, what, how do I do this? How do I raise them to, to have that inner voice that, that says, no, this is what I care about. And I think one of the biggest contributions in my childhood was that I was an outsider. I was in a very small school you know, like the same 12 kids in your grade for your entire education. So like no one will forget that time you, I don't know, like pooped your pants in the second grade, right? Like your 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 story carries with you. And I was a total nerd. And I was a little bit awkward. I was a lot awkward. And and I didn't have any friends. I didn't. I think my first friend, I I was 15 when I had my first friend. And it was an incredibly lonely childhood. Uh, Nancy Drew ended up being a very close friend. <laughs> um, but what it gave me was, it gave me the confidence to just fuck it, to do what I'm, what I'm gonna do. Like, if they don't like me, <laughs> no matter what, <laughs> then I might as well just go by the beat of my own drum, right? They're not gonna like me if I try to, to fit in. So, so why bother? And it just gave me such independence that when I got to my early 20s, my first job at the Metropolitan Opera, I worked, you know, six days a week for the entire season. But then in the summer, I got six weeks off. You couldn't take a day off over Christmas, but you could have six weeks off, which is unheard of when you're 22, right? And I wanted to see the world. I never traveled anywhere. I, I didn't have access to that growing up. But none of my friends had six weeks off. And so it was that that crisis moment of like, do I go by myself or do I lose this opportunity? And I was like, well, didn't have friends for a long time. Don't need friends to travel. And I packed a backpack and went to Europe. And the next summer I went to South America and the next year I went to East Africa and, and it's sort of one thing after another. I practiced being alone. I practiced making friends on the road, being in uncertain situations, and I got comfortable with discomfort or at least maybe familiar, if not comfortable. And that familiarity gave me freedom to try big things and maybe fail, but to know that anything short of that was going to be really unfulfilling. That's heavy. <laughs> That's heavy. I'm just like sitting with the finding, like being able to tolerate discomfort. I mean, it's yeah. a big, I've talked about it on some of the other podcasts I've done and I talk about how Desire is such a hard thing for most people because we've not been taught how to sit in it without taking action of resolving it, whatever mm -hmm. that thing is. It's like, oh, I feel sexually charged. Watch porn. I mm -hmm. feel like I hate my job. I'm going to act out and be an asshole. Like there's yeah. just like we generally just take an immediate action. Mm -hmm. um, is there any advice you have for people again? Because I, I just imagine a, a lot of people will be excited about this concept of finding these multiple paths they could go down. But for a lot of mm -hmm. people, it's a dark night of the soul. Yeah, It's like, I'm going to have to face, like you said, all these multiple paths and at least mm -hmm. grieve some of the past ones before mm -hmm. I can really focus on creating the new ones. Yeah. How did you learn to do that? Besides like putting yourself in challenging situations, is there anything you've read, any guidance you have for someone that says, help me learn to sit in my own discomfort? Yeah. So one of the opportunities, I mean, this is sort of consistent with with travel, but I needed to practice it in other contexts too. I, I took up long distance running. I am not a natural athlete. I'm just not. And um, and running in particular, I'm really, really slow. 
So long distance running, half marathons, marathons, they take me a long time. <laughs> and and I decided after my first startup failed, which was the first real failure I had ever experienced. I was 27, 28, and I never failed. And then I did really publicly, really painfully. And that failure was so inconsistent with my internal narrative, right? I was so smart. I was so ambitious. I I was the chick who was going to pull it off. And then I, I, I wasn't. So I was like, well, that's contradictory data and I don't know what to do with that. And so I decided to start running partially because it's free to run like all these other sports cost a lot. <laughs> I was like running, I can just do with some shoes. Um, but it gave me the chance to practice showing up and being miserable for like two and a half hours, three hours, over and over and over again. Because I really struggled with this idea of being bad at something. I struggled with the idea of like, I'm putting in the work and it still sucks. <laughs> and and it gave me the opportunity to sort of build that muscle of being uncomfortable, of being bad and trying. And over the course of that, it changed my narrative to not I'm the person who succeeds, but I'm the person who shows up and works hard. And that gave me permission to try a bunch of other things that I wasn't sure I was going to succeed at. But I really wanted to try. And so I think in some ways to, to build that permission for yourself in this dark night of the soul and the grieving for what you could have been also requires facing down, like, what is it that has stopped you from trying up to this point? And it's going to be different for everybody. But but having a, a real and honest reflection about, like, what is that Achilles heel? You know, there are some people that are really afraid to try something for fear that, you know, they'll lose all their money. And I find this particularly true of people who grew up with resources. Because they internally, they'll never say this out loud, but internally they fear, I grew up with someone else's money. I started my career with someone else's money. And if I lose it all, I don't know if I can build it back. Right? And so there's this, like, you have to figure out what is that thing that's preventing you from taking those risks? And then get creative and devise a way to practice that discomfort in small ways so that you're really comfortable with it when it when it comes time to do something big that matters. That's a great answer. You're you're, you're an incredible storyteller, by the way. That's why I keep poking <laughs> at you. I'm like I'm really curious about the concepts in the book, but you just Thank have such you. an amazing way of kind of telling your journey through it, and I think people really can find themselves in that. So, going back to the pillars, I think I, I remember the first pillar you said was identity. Mm -hmm. What were the other three? Yeah. So optionality is the second one. And that really only comes from the moment that you can find your identity bigger than your job title is when it opens up all these doors. And recognizing sort of in tandem with that, it's not too late. Unless you're dead, it's not too late. <laughs> That's what gives you permission to see these options. Pillar three is about diversification. So this is particularly relevant given the amount of contextual disruption that is just happening in our lives. I mean, I, I locked in the text of this book in November of 2022 before anyone had ever heard the, the phrase chat GPT. And now like every white collar industry is quaking, just uh, uh, really concerned about how much AI and and all of these tools are going to fundamentally reorganize these industries that like if you're in law school right now if you're in accounting school right now you should be terrified slash you should really be thinking about what are other ways that i might want to show up in the world because the number of lawyers that the world will need is going to shrink the number of accountants is going to shrink so in the face of all of these disruptions, whether it's technological, geopolitical, ecological, whatever those things are, recognizing a 40-year career is never going to exist, but even a 10-year career might not be true. So what are the different ways that you can deploy 
your <clears throat> your skills, your interests, your networks, your curiosities, such that the world can do what it's going to do, and you're not going to have the rug ripped out from under you because you had all of your eggs in one basket. So diversification is pillar number three. And then the last one, pillar four, is about flexibility. That's what these first three pillars offer you. Your identity, the optionality, the diversification, it gives you that flexibility to rebalance the mix of your portfolio for the stages of life that you go through. Recognizing what you want is going to change, what you need is going to change. It's not flighty to grow and change. And, And a big part of this is sort of letting go of whatever this previous narrative was about what who you were and what you wanted and how you saw the world and say, okay, that was true. And now here's what I need for this chapter. Let's go. So good. And I, I immediately go to, to everyone who defunded arts programs, like <laughs> eat shit, like truly, yes. <laughs> like, I don't know. It, it just like the creativity that we foster in kids and the ability mm-hmm. to show them that like, Hey, I know this is the way it is today, but as the world's accelerating into uncertainty, having that creative muscle, yeah. finding unique ways to do things, f- allowing yourself to self-express. Like I hear so much of that stuff that it was always hard for me to justify it of like, why mm-hmm. is it that there are so many people in business that have these secret musical talents and these mm-hmm. secret creative paths? And I'm like, well, because they're the ones that are they're the ones that are navigating the uncertainty where other people in some of these white collar jobs you're talking about are just crashing head on like a crash test dummy into a brick wall. That's exactly it. And I think it's so frustrating having gone through the last like 15 years of everyone being like STEM, 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 like forget about the arts. Let's just fund science and technology and all these things. And I'm like, I, I love STEM. I was a math major. I get it. But but as I look around at like the number of things that we can now automate means the most valuable workers, as though that's the only metric that matters, it's not, but the most valuable workers are going to be the ones who understand technology, but have that higher level thinking, that creativity, those connecting of ideas. And that is trained through the arts. That's trained through reading and and writing and storytelling and making something out of nothing. And that's an entire... I don't believe that only some people are creative. I believe everyone is. I mean, you look at kids. Kids are universally creative. And at some point, we stop emphasizing it. We stop encouraging it. And they lose the practice of creativity. And truly, that is what I believe is the, like, the human value add in the next five years of AI outsourcing all of the stuff that can be. We're still going to need people, but it's through that lens of creativity And that's where to anyone I talk to now, I mean, this is where all the case studies in the book, almost every single one has a creative pursuit as part of their portfolio. Hmm. So anyone I talk to now, I'm like, did you have the trombone in your closet? Like, bring it back out. You want to try stand up comedy? Like, go sign up for that class, whatever that thing is. You want to ceramics? By all means, (laughs) like, get started. It's not too late. You're not dead yet. Find a way to bring that practice into your life. What advice do you have for people uh, that want to go down that road but cannot overcome the inner critic, especially in the creative mm-hmm. pursuits, right? Like I think a lot of people are not, they don't feel safe to share their art or mm-hmm. share their creativity and be in it because they're like, I have this voice that says, that's so stupid, that's not good enough. Do you have any advice yeah. to those people? So the first thing that I suggest is to get outside your head and just go talk to the people who know you really well. One of the things that I did when my company failed uh, because I was just, I, I couldn't see myself clearly. I was like, what do I have to offer the world? Who am I? Like, what is going on here? Is I went out and had coffee with everyone in my network. I did 70 coffee chats. You do not need to have this much coffee. You know, 15, 20 folks, it's enough. But I went out and talked to the people who knew me the best. And I basically asked them, like, what do you see when you see me? I asked them three very specific questions. When have you seen me happiest? What do you come to me for? Like, what's that moment in your head where you're like, you know what? I should see what Christina thinks about this. And where do I stand out against my peers? And what I think is really illuminating about this, when you go and have these conversations with people who know you, I would bet dollars to donuts that they're not going to say, 
you know, you are happiest when you are building Excel models, uh, you know, 15 hours a day, right? They're not going to come up with like a very specific skill or, you know, line on your resume. What they said to me was you're happiest when you're in charge of your calendar. You don't mind working hard. You love working hard, but you want to do it on your terms. You have to be in control. You are happiest when you're building something from nothing, which was crucial because at that point I was going down this path of being a manager. And they're like, yeah, you can manage people, but you also need to be a creator to be happy. You need to make things and not just manage things. I was like, that is a really important insight. So having these conversations, hopefully, will help you recognize that what people see in you is so far beyond the very sort of tightly constructed box that you may have put yourself into. They might point out you're an amazing storyteller. You are the life of the party. You're the person that like, if the music dies, they hand the microphone to to vamp until they figure something out, right? And you're like, oh, interesting. What other worlds might I get to to try that piece of me? I think the other piece of it is like, maybe you connected to something you left over from childhood, you put it away, you didn't want to do that anymore. And maybe you never loved that thing. Maybe you like hated playing scales on your violin. Okay, so leave the violin behind. Do you want to pick up the ukulele? Do you want to... You want to learn to jam and do cover songs for the Beatles instead of classical music? Like there are there are other versions that you can bring forth that might actually resonate. Because I feel like when you hit on the creative pursuit that actually clicks for you, the shame, it gets drowned out because it just offers you so much more. I'm not saying you have to go and perform an open mic night. I'm just saying, like, jam in your living room with some YouTube songs on, you know? Like, you can start small. But I really encourage you to go and talk to the people who love you because I promise they see a version of you that's really amazing and you might not see it. That was a great answer. <laughs> Damn. I'm like, I've got some phone calls I got to make. Um, <laughs> But no, I, I really do. I love that idea of reducing the burden of or coming to terms with the fact that we can never see ourselves as clearly as the collective of our network can at yeah. times or the collective of our families and close friends. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I remember doing a similar exercise. I don't know if you're familiar with Landmark. Mm hmm. Little culty, but whatever. And culty. Uh, I'll probably get I'll probably get <laughs> negative. Uh, I'll get some trolling for saying that. But um, they had us go out and do an exercise where it was like, um, go ask. Like figure out all your different networks. So I mean, it was like music, aviation, my entrepreneur groups in New York, like Summit Series, like all those different groups I was mm -hmm. part of. And they're like, pick one person who's representative of those communities and ask them what you're the best at. What or actually it was, what does the community think you're the best at? Hmm. What does the community think you're not very good at? And it was like, and what can they really depend on you for? Hmm. And going through that exercise, and I might've messed up some of the questions. It was shocking to find out that my family's answers were completely different from my friend circle's answers. And so I not only found out like the value I brought, but how I showed up differently in different environments. And I was like, well, that's something interesting to audit is, mm -hmm. am I not authentic in certain spaces? Mm -hmm. And doing that gave me a lot of permission. Like the hardest thing I heard was my friend, my friend Peter said to me, he goes, you know, uh, you talk about a lot of things you want to do, but no one actually believes you're actually going to follow through on any of it. <gasps> and I was like, oh, that hurts. <laughs> Especially, that was my entrepreneur group, by the way. That was like my entrepreneur friend circle. And it was such a powerful moment of like, that gave me the awareness to see that I don't give myself permission. That's why it's so cool mm -hmm. to kind of go back to that earlier question is yeah. why it, it was more like I could go sit, you know, sit at home and cry and be like, everyone thinks I'm a schmuck. Or I could say like, <laughs> what about me is not mm -hmm. allowing me to have the permission to actually complete the things I do. And it was the mm -hmm. fear of judgment. Yeah. So it, it's, it's so interesting to hear your answers, especially because I know that they're off the cuff. Like I'm just mm. throwing random stuff at you and it's, <laughs> It's really beautiful to hear that. And and my heart sings at the thought of what if we just gave people that permission to find that creative part of themselves? The world would be such a better place. Yeah, so such much. And place. you hit on exactly it that I, everyone I talk to about this, their first you know, response is sort of like, well, the world isn't going to let me do this. And I was like, is the world not going to let you do this or are you not going to let you do this? Because I, 
I guarantee you like 95% of this is about you not granting yourself permission to try this. And then 5% of this is you have to connect the dots of whatever it is you're doing so that everyone else can understand how it fits together, right? You've got to do some storytelling to help make sense of, because on a resume or my LinkedIn, like you read it without any context and you're like, I don't know what this chick is doing. And that's, that's okay. That makes sense. So it's my job to connect the dots and help you process. What am I doing? How do I show up in the world? What do I have to offer when I enter the room? But 95% of this, it's the permission you have to give yourself first. Yeah. Yeah. Again, so, so well stated. And it, it makes me wonder, cause I imagine that you move through life as a storyteller. Like I, I almost yeah. feel like your life is like, you are intentionally writing the pages <laughs> and uh, like, un it's just an un beautiful unfolding of a great narrative. What, what is the theme of the story that you're trying to tell with your life? That's a great question. You know, I, I gave a talk a couple of years back at the French embassy in New York. <laughs> it was a last minute invitation. They needed a woman. They had all all dude line up and they needed a woman. That was how they invited me. Um, it's fine. And uh, but the question was, what is your passion? What do you like? Why are you here? And I was like, man. I got to come up with why am I here and give them like the five minute version. And I didn't have too much time to overthink it, which I think was a gift. Yeah. Because I came up with truly what it seems consistent with all the individual efforts that I have pulled together for my work and my life is that I, I desperately want other people to feel welcome and to feel like they belong. And I have to believe that it comes from the first 15 years of my life where I didn't. Or I didn't feel welcome and I didn't feel I belonged. And so I have, have made it my work, whether I'm building a fashion company with sizing that actually takes into account bra sizes and height and body shapes that actually reflect what women look like whether it's a program for girls in computer science so they can see the impact that they can have and how the world gets built once they recognize that they are wanted there, or whether it's a book that helps people be, be all of the things that they want to be rather than the one thing they thought they had to be. I don't know. I just, I feel like if people recognize that their little strangely shaped puzzle piece is wanted and welcomed, I think we'd have a lot of power unleashed for good. Yes to all of that. I feel very seen right now, I gotta tell you. <laughs> I'm like, are you speaking to me or the audience right now? What is going on? Yes. You're in my mind, yes, exactly. Um, so that that kind of brings us to my, my last question for you. And again, as someone who has achieved so much, who has so many hyphens already, <laughs> what is your dream beyond? Hmm. Wow. I think you might have actually rendered me speechless. Um, honestly, it's it's exactly what I have right now. I I did an interview last week, the week before, where someone asked, "Are you happy?" And it took me by such surprise. I like burst into tears <laughs> because I am. I am. I I have the most beautiful family with a partner that I worked very hard to find. Let me be very clear. 10 plus years of dating in New York City. I worked hard. That, that is hard work. I deserve this amazing partner and I have him. Um, I have a career that I adore and I'm incandescently happy, which was for 15-year-old Christina, I think she wouldn't even think that was ever possible. 
And so, I don't know, my dream beyond is I want more people to feel like this. Well, thank you for sharing your story because I think that's a really great step in making that possible. I know I feel thank more permission, you. so <laughs> thank you. And I am ha I'm like really happy to see you happy. Thank you. I remember when we spent time probably about a decade ago, like I, mm -hmm. I did see you seeking. You're quite the seeker. And it's so <laughs> nice to see seeking. you. It's nice to see you like just arrived. You have just arrived. Thank and you. It's it's really beautiful. So I, I hope I hope everyone heard some of the things I heard in here, which is really that self-permission, mm -hmm. like really people giving themselves that self-permission really connecting with that play part, the young part, the creative part that we've in many cases stuffed down and found to be superfluous in our life. Mm -hmm. And and I think more than that, I, I would love it if anyone that hears this would share in any way with me or with Christina, what are some hyphens that are blank spaces right now that you want to fill in with something? Yes. I, I, I would love to hear that. And just, I'm happy to be in support of saying, go add some onto your name. Go nuts. <laughs> Go nuts, like onto your titles, onto your experience, just add some stuff on there, have some fun with yourself. And mm -hmm. if you're moved by what Christina shared, you can check out her book on, is it on everything, I imagine? It's all on the, everything. All the book platforms. All the places. Uh, yeah, so you can check it out. It's, again, The Portfolio Life, How to Future Proof Your Career, Avoid Burnout, and Build a Life Bigger Than Your Business Card. Please write reviews on Amazon. It's a great way to get that ranked up. And now I'm such an advocate for you, Christina, after this interview, I'm like, yes to everything you said. <laughs> I want to see your dream beyond come true too. And if you can't buy the book for some reason, you can you can request it from your library. Uh, and again, I just hope you are as moved as always as I am. I feel so fortunate to have uh, Christina. You spent you know all this time with me, and I'm like sometimes it feels so self indulgent because I get to ask you all these amazing <laughs> questions. You give me such beautiful answers. So thank you for speaking from the heart. And of course, uh, it it is really reinvigorating for me to see like it works. When you when you when you work at it, because I know that if there's one thing I remember about you, you're someone who always worked at it, and it's really beautiful to see it works out when you really honor yourself, you listen to yourself, and you go build what what your heart most desires. Thank you so much. Cool. Well, thank you for being here. Thank you for listening to the Dream Beyond. I hope that you received whatever message or inspiration you were meant to get from today's episode. I had a great time recording it for you. If you love the show, please take 30 seconds to subscribe, rate, and review it. That really helps get the word out. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Instagram.com slash Nick Tarasio, LinkedIn.com slash in slash Nick Tarasio, or YouTube.com slash N Tarasio.